You're listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. I'm Mitch Alexander. I'm Tom McLean. I'm Tom Lang. And I'm Evie. We've got Isaac in our headphones, keeping us fact check and making sure the buses run on time. And a little while later into this episode, Evie and I have a fantastic interview with domain journalist Jim Malo. Highly, highly, highly recommend. You even just skip to it now. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the rest of this. this. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> it's, it's fucking fantastic. He is so switched on. He is so across uh, renters' rights, rental laws, issues with landlords. And, 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 and the reason for that is because he fucking writes at Domain. <laughs> which was the weirdest, coolest thing. Evie's been hammering um, us to have him on for so long because he writes some of the best in-depth um, and impartial as far as it needs to be, reporting on the housing crisis and the impact of COVID and all that, at Domain. That's where they are. That's where the, that's where the people that need to read it are. Yeah. And just, just a generally lovely guy to talk to as well. Oh, amazing. I always skip over Domain because I assume it's just uh, a kind of, a rag for people who are into the housing market, but you're saying it's actually got some good uh, journalism? Well, Lang, if you listen to our interview, you'll find out all about that. <laughs> well, I'm going to slightly later in the episode. <laughs> but for now, we do have a whole bunch of stuff to cover because it turns out Australia is still a fucking quagmire. Yeah, before you get to a, a really interesting sort of journalistic space in Australia, you just just pay yeah. your taxes, you know, spend 30 <laughs> minutes listening to some comedians complain, and <laughs> then you can get to the substance. It'll be, it'll be really good <laughs> all right i want to complain first <laughs> i want to complain about mining companies what lang you never complain about those guys we complain about these guys every week usually it's rio tinto um mostly because they blew up a sacred aboriginal site uh the duke and gorge um which everybody's got quite angry about last week we were talking about how there wasn't really any consequences for that um their ceo he didn't really get fired he just got Paid $30 million as a punishment. Yeah, to resign in six months. So not that bad. A quick thing on that too. I haven't read anywhere about how he's been like banned from joining other oh, companies no. at any point. That I don't think he I think he can just go somewhere else pretty quickly and clean him. Maybe the Liberal Party will have him. They'll just swap him with another CEO. <laughs> he's not going to go to the Liberal Party. He doesn't make enough money there. It goes the other way around. <laughs> yeah, they say it's a revolving door, but like it's not a two-way thing. You go to the Liberal Party and then you become a, a fossil yeah. executive. You've got to revolve upwards. Yeah, you don't downgrade to the Liberal Party. <laughs> and if you're a Labour Party MP, you just go to clean energy or super. Uh, <laughs> so this week, BHP and the Fortescue Metals Group, which are both big mining kind of company conglomerates, um, they were both asked by their shareholders to adopt a moratorium on mining that would disturb, destroy, or desecrate cultural heritage sites. Okay, that's a quote. Disturb, destroy, or desecrate. All they need to do is, is go, yeah, okay, we promise that when we're digging up iron ore, we're not going to dig it up from anywhere sacred. Like, yeah, there's a lot of sacred sites with iron ore. Um, but there's a lot of iron ore not at sacred sites. It's a big continent. There's a lot of iron ore. You can figure this out, guys. There's a lot of neutral iron ore. Right? There's a lot of cursed iron ore. Right? Get some of that. Cursed. It's fine. <laughs> it's like, yeah, all the best unobtainium is under the tree of life, but there's friggin' other unobtainium. <laughs> so their shareholders ask these companies just to promise not to knowingly blow up any sacred sites to get their sweet, precious minerals. And these companies just said, nah. Nah, we're not going to promise Absolutely that. Absolutely. We're not, not even going to really negotiate on it. We're just <laughs> going to refuse. But the reasons they gave were so disgustingly disingenuous. They So Fortescue, the Fortescue group said, uh, this moratorium uh, is not supported by Fortescue as it would disempower local Aboriginal people and limit the positive contribution the mining industry is making. BHP also said, this has the consequence of disempowering traditional owner groups to manage their cultural heritage consistent with the principle of self-determination. Fuck off. Basically saying, if they want to let us blow it up, who are we to stop them? We've got to give them the power to be steamrolled. <laughs> what if they want to be desecrated, guys? Have you considered that? Maybe they like it when their shit's desecrated. I don't know if you guys remember, back in June, early June, hmm. Rio Tinto advertised for a cultural heritage advisor. Hmm. I wonder if that person is responsible for this response. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's amazing that they're both such similar. They've both gone with, no, we have to, we, we can't promise not to blow up sacred sites. We would, we would love to not, but the local Aboriginal people really need us to blow up their sacred sites for them. You know what? If they want to blow them up, 
they can blow them up themselves. Someone else can blow them up. The local Aboriginal people are free to blow up their own sacred sites. The BHP and Fortescue are the ones being forbidden to do this. And the whole thing of this is disempowering traditional owner groups is so disgusting because it's this classic thing of freedom. Oh, you've got to have freedom to make your own choices. But it's not really freedom if you are being manipulated by a giant multi-billion dollar mining company that basically owns most of the country. You're a fairly, you know, low socioeconomic in general community of indigenous Australians with very little political or economic power. You can so easily be bossed around by a giant mining company. And that's what's happened for most of Australia's history since they made it illegal to just go in and blow up whatever you want. And you had to, you know, kind of have these land rights and laws and things which are incredibly weak. The big mining companies went, fine, we'll just bribe some people or we'll we'll do some deals that benefit small groups of people so we can buy their stuff off them it's it's disgusting also like just talking about like that um cultural heritage advisor yeah. there's a lot of money for going over to the dark side oh yeah um <laughs> because that's the it, thing. it is very profitable to be a anthropologist who works for the bad guys yeah. um a friend of mine was telling me that um who has a phd that um anthropologist consultants with a phd can get over a thousand dollars a day working for people like rio tinto so there yeah you go. and if you are an indigenous person in one of these areas even if you are a traditional owner and your culture is important to you, it's not to say that, like, someone throws a few hundred thousand dollars your way. You're not immune to that. You probably need money for various things. Um, Everyone has their price. And these big mining companies can afford any price, which is why they have to be restricted in some fashion. Yeah, they're the ones who are giving their CEOs $30 million (laughs) as a punishment. So, <laughs> I just I just can't believe how like morally and academically tricky they're trying to be with the reasoning. Yeah. Like it's a it's a theodicy. It is a the- it is this it runs along the same argument as why God allows evil. Yeah. The argument oh, the argument wow. being in those instances where like God allows evil because it's better to have evil and for you to make a choice because again you've got freedom and choice. Freedom and choice is better than having no evil in the world because then you wouldn't be able to make choices. And the idea that they're saying this runs counter to uh, this disempowers traditional owner groups to manage their cultural heritage. Well, if they've got nothing to manage, are they really managing it? So, yes. You do not have to interpose yourself and do something horrible to their land for them to go, hey, can you please not do that? That's not empowering anyone. That's just leaving them the fuck alone to do what they want, which is the fucking... What, that's the point of those types of the, the, the cultural management of the lands. It's well, disgusting. You know what they say, Mitch, from the, uh, the, the old chicken soup for the soul is uh, when God blows up a sacred <laughs> site, he opens a coal mine. <laughs> oh, God. It's, it's the classic freedom to fuck. and freedom from. So in Australia, we don't have the freedom to own a gun. We've got less freedoms than America in that fashion. But we do have the freedom from being shot in schools, generally. And it's the same here. Yeah, okay, so if we we ban BHP from, from blowing up sacred sites, we remove those local Aboriginal people's freedom to ask for their sacred sites to be blown up. But we also... Yeah, we remove their freedom to go to court. Yeah, we give them freedom from having their sites blown up. Um... Now, is that yeah. is that paternalism? Maybe in some fashion, but it's paternalism. That's it's 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 freaking. I don't look. You're trying to stop BHP from blowing up sacred sites. I shouldn't be having to tie myself in knots. I mean, here. I think that's exactly the trap that they're yeah. setting there. Is they're oh, like yeah. they're, they're making it very difficult for the left wing to argue yeah. about it because they're like, oh yeah, you're going to criticize us for for providing you know further agency to the Aboriginal mm-hmm. communities, like. Hey, guess what? Yeah. Fuck you. I'll be wrong about this. You shouldn't blow them yeah. up. I think hey, mining yeah. companies convert <laughs> you. Cancel me. I think it's exactly, <laughs> it's exactly like yeah. when people go, oh, but we should be able to sell dirty coal to poor Indian communities so they can have electricity. Do you not want those poor Indian communities to have electricity with our dirty yeah. coal? We're bringing light and life. This is an excuse that's been used like since time immemorial, mm. though. It's the whole, like, the dig. well, it's they're getting dignity through this job so we can make them do sweatshop work. Oh, I mean, I've 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 met like a sweatshop manager who was like, yeah, no, I'm not a monster. Uh, like I, I went to, to India many, many years ago with World Vision and we met a sweatshop uh, manager guy and we spoke to him and he was like, yeah, no, I'm providing for the local economy. These children, this, this is children who were doing like um, dot work on like uh, tapestries and stuff. And they were like, I don't know, eight years old. And it was just like a, a, a factory of them. And he's like, yeah, 
the, the money that I pay them is like really important for the local economy. They're supporting their families, blah, blah, blah. Like he was genuinely like, well, who knows how genuinely he was, but like, uh, you know, he, he, he was talking about that. And it's like, yeah, don't fucking run a sweatshop full of children though. Yeah, it's not like it evens out. It's not like you can have a good and an evil and then they sort of cancel out and you're only left with like numbers in either column. It's like, no, it, it is. it can just be bad. And I think it's just that thing that like conservatives, big business, right wingers try to do all the time is just that like, I'll mention a minority and then that'll be a wedge for the argument. It's like, no, it doesn't fucking work, idiot. Like, you can't you can't just say, ah, but we might be wanting to desecrate. We, we might not want to promise that we won't desecrate traditional know, Aboriginal right? cultural sites. But, yeah, but we like empowering them. So, what do you think about that? It's like, shut the fuck up, it's idiot. It's also like- I just, I'm, I'm just mostly annoyed that someone was paid to think that up. Like, someone with an arts degree, at least, probably a master's, sat down and went, hmm, how can I, how can I thread this, how can I thread this knot? Hmm. And they came up with this disingenuous shit. It's just, whoever, whoever came up with this, if you're listening, you probably are. Be ashamed, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but feel, just bring back, feel ashamed. It's fucking disgusting. I hope that their house happens to be on top of a whole lot of iron ore um, and, it, and it has to get blown up and no one has taken away BHP's freedom to do that. The real reason that this is a thing that we're arguing about, and we're not arguing about whether BHP should have the freedom to blow up the Melbourne CBD for its iron ore, because there's probably some down there, is because they are able to take advantage of indigenous communities who don't have the rights or the money generally to prevent this. But they're not able to take advantage of the Melbourne CBD uh, because they don't need to make laws saying you you can't blow up the Melbourne CBD for its iron ore because everyone goes, of course not. That's not, you couldn't pay us enough money to blow up the Melbourne CBD for its iron ore. They wouldn't even let them like rip up the fucking Queen Victoria Market's car park. We're all familiar with JobKeeper, which is the program. I'm going to, we're all familiar, but I'm going to explain it. It's the it's the program <laughs> where the the government gives money to companies who have been really hit hard by the pandemic, so that they can continue to pay their employees, so that they don't have to shut their doors, so that when the pandemic is finally gone away in oh, it's going to be oh. two weeks. It's all going to be a thing of the past. Um, when 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 the economy <laughs> beautifully reopens and everything's mm-hmm. back to normal, oh, it's back to the way things were. Everyone's fine because a JobKeeper it 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 it, it, it you know it tided mm-hmm. them over. Um, and that's if you have lost thirty percent in some cases or fifty percent in some other cases of your revenue, you are qualified for JobKeeper. Yeah. It turns out a lot of companies have been trying to get it, even though they're. Or fun. they've been getting because you're meant to. Shocking. I'm shocked. You're meant to get JobKeeper, and you're meant to give it to your employees. You're meant to pay your employees, but they've yes. been getting this JobKeeper, yeah. and they've just been paying their shareholders or their executives. They've just been getting that money, still firing the employees, and just bloody keeping the money. The ATO, the Australian Tax Office, uh, received over eight thousand tip-offs to uh, say that hey, this company's trying to rot JobKeeper. This one's rotting JobKeeper. Um, since the program started, the tax office has removed over fifteen thousand companies that turned out to be ineligible for JobKeeper. But so far, they have issued zero penalties. Zero. Zero. So it's fifteen thousand companies that were claiming JobKeeper that weren't eligible, but every single one of them. Innocent mistake, don't sweat it, baby. No penalties for you. Yeah, and so that's that's 15,000 slaps on the wrist. Not even slaps on the wrist. That's just like 15,000, like, I'm stop- I'm not going to hold your hand at the dance anymore. Like, no, you can't. I'm sorry, you can't. <laughs> and that's 8,000 businesses that may need to repay money. Oh, yeah, you got to pay it back. You don't get to keep the money, but you just don't get a penalty. The penalties were meant to be pretty big. In the article as well, like there's reporting that seems to suggest that like maybe 2,000 of the actual job keepers, the, the workers, have also had some like, you know, fuckery and they're like trying to double dip, like maybe they're claiming from two bosses or whatever and you know what, I'm for that, I don't give a shit this this government is, is corrupt and illegal, so taking money from them is, is morally fine, but the idea that the ATO was so emphatic about how um how strongly they want to come down on people. They get 8,000 tip-offs. They find 15,000 companies that aren't that are ineligible and that can't claim what they are currently claiming and they go, "Ah, oh, well, don't." And that's it. Don't. That's, that's it. the entire oh, here we go. Here's the quote in the article. The ATO warned businesses in June that employers found to have knowingly rotted the system may face fines of up to $126,000 or Ooh. 10 years mm. in prison. Oh, that's huge. An ATO spokeswoman said no administrative penalties had been applied after JobKeeper reviews, <laughs> but a financial crime task force did have 
10 cases it was ten. investigating. Oh ten. my goodness me, 10. 10 cases out of 15,000. The ATO really just got their fucking sleuth hat on here. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that company profits were up by 14.9%, while wages and salaries were down by 2.5%. So, so this is the other thing we've talked about a little bit on this show about what JobKeeper, even when it's working properly, it is essentially government subsidized wages. So when you hear these articles about like, you know, companies were claiming JobKeeper and yet still paying their shareholders a lot of money. What was essentially happening was they said, fuck, we think we're going to lose 30% of um, turnover. They apply for JobKeeper, they get money from the government, they pay the workers that money, and then they don't have less than, th- they have less than 30% uh, turnover loss. They're still fine. And so they go, oh, sweet, we're up here you go shareholders here's some fucking money don't worry about us paying our workers the government's taking care of that and when i say the government's taking care of that i mean taxpayers have paid the wages of these people so shareholders can continue to profit from the company so it's a it's a cash transfer it barely bears pointing out but like it's really it lays bare the difference that uh, that uh in between like the way the government examines the um, rorting of JobKeeper compared to how people um, claim Centrelink. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we'll have billions oh, and billions yeah. of dollars to try and see if anyone's trying to rort the system and maybe like five are compared to all these companies who have been, you know, tipped off. 8,000 companies. Eight, how many tip-offs? 8,000 8, tip-offs. Uh, yeah, 8,000 tip-offs, 15,000 companies. Yeah, 10 investigations. And how much money are they going to invest in investigating all of those? It's, it's all about who gets the benefit of the doubt. Companies are good by default. Um, and doll bludgers, people on Centrelink <laughs> are bad by default. And robo debt, we talk about it every week. That's just where the government came up with phony um, excuses to try and get money back out of people on welfare. And just imagine how much money they're going to invest now in people who've claimed their super. Oh yeah. Like, and that's their own money. That's not even like government money. Yeah, it's a, it's a wealth mm. transfer from taxpayers and the welfare system to companies private companies yeah it's still just wild to me that we've got so many of these companies that so like the the quote in the the sydney morning herald there is at least 25 companies listed on the asx paying bonuses worth 24 million dollars to executives millions more in dividends to shareholders these are companies that are paying out millions of bonuses and dividends who this year their turnover fell by at least 30 percent and they probably dropped how if your turnover fell by 30 fucking percent your, your business has, like, a whole third of that business has disappeared and you're still, like, millions of dollars worth of bonuses and dividends. Like, maybe put a fucking kibosh on the bonuses this year because <laughs> you lost a third of your business. Yeah. No, 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 no. We lost a third of our business in ATO numbers, but in terms of dividends and bonus numbers, we're fucking crushing it. Everybody's getting bonuses. Everybody's getting dividends. The company's doing strong. If it's doing strong, <laughs> you don't need JobKeeper. Pay your fucking employee. This is, it's just another way that the, that the sort of financial crime, the Cayman Islands bullshit, where they're just like, oh, we've, we've looked at a way that we can move the numbers around and we can still pay out dividends. We can still pay out bonuses and we just receive that free money from the government. We give it straight to them and we don't lose our employees. It's absolutely it's because meanwhile, they asked the treasurer, Joss Frydenberg, like, what do you think about this? And he just, like, leans back in his big leather chair. And he's like, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> treasurer Joss Frydenberg said, enforcement of any non-compliance with the program was a matter for the ATO. If it's cool with them, it's cool with mm. me. That last bit's a direct quote. <laughs> Did he? S- yeah. <laughs> yeah. We lost the like rest of the understand. audio because he was puffing on a huge hoagie cigar. <laughs> And then just <laughs> cackled to himself for three minutes and we left. That was weird. Yeah. When we talk about like giving bonuses and like the disbursement of profits in a company, uh, one thing I very strongly believe is that if you either want to be completely like absolved of any ideas that capitalism might work or realize that you're a total psycho who believes capitalism is great, just like <laughs> read anything about insolvency. Mm. Like, it is oh, yeah. amazing. Like we, the minute you learn, like just about the inner workings of how um, you know the the assets of a company and the profits of a company are dispersed when a company goes under, hmm. uh, it ima- immediately makes you realize who's the who the profit motive is for. Or it's this whole vulture um, capitalism thing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and yeah, oh, sure. vulture capitalism is like the new bit on top of insolvency as well, which is like you know the new development in the last ten years where you see. Um, yeah, just uh, like private investors um, looking to strip companies for parts 
and they make off with the money mm. in the end. There's more money but, in, yeah. in running a company into the ground than actually having a company that makes profit. It's companies not running Absolutely. to make profits. Companies running to make executives and shareholders money rather than And Dick Smith else. was like a big example of that in recent years in Australia. Like that is like one of the biggest sort of scalps that has gone under to vulture capitalism. And of course now Virgin oh, Airlines. Sure. Mm. There's the, just I, I, I can't get over the fact that they're still paying out mm. dividends saying like, yeah, we made a profit. We lost 30% of our business, yeah. but overall... Numbers it's are disgusting. up. It's like, yeah. if you can lose 30% of your fucking turnover and you're still making a profit, maybe you should pay your fucking workers more. Like, just instantly radicalized by that. I was already radicalized, but that, that's, the, that's the number that's tipped me over. Radicalized all over again. And this is JobKeeper, which pays money to, to companies. Now, there's JobSeeker, which pays money to unemployed people. Remind me when that gets cancelled. Oh, this week? Yeah, it's getting tapered off right. pretty soon. It's getting cut in half. Um, they decided the unemployed week. people have had enough money. Yeah. Get back out there and get a job. Well, they, they, they've they decided that living above the poverty line is too yep. much money because they're unemployed. Yep. If you're unemployed, you should be living below the poverty line. Can't you see that this is topsy-turvy? You don't have a job, so you should you be starting. You should be a shareholder. Well, yeah, if, so if obviously, you, we have to cut jobs. If you don't want to be under the poverty line, get a job that puts you over the poverty line. That's yeah. what That's what they all did with their free university education and their public purse jobs that they recently got another pay rise for, which of all oh, the, the politicians themselves don't set the pay rises. Shut the fuck up. They set the <laughs> rules. They can change <laughs> themselves and not get it. They can say, no, I don't want a fucking pay rise, but they don't. So Scott Morrison, there, I think it was $11,000 pay rise over the next, um, like in his annual paycheck, which is pretty good. But if you're not, if you don't have a job, if you're one of the people, which is well, I think it's now 117 people for every job, something like that. It's something stupid there's not enough jobs for people but you should be in poverty because you don't have a job it's the way of the world that's what has to happen so if you're unemployed if you're trying to deal with job keeper and job seeker and things like that um you'll be aware of robo debt which is where the government made up fake debts that people on welfare owed so they could claw money out of them if you're Catherine campbell you probably aren't aware of what robo debt is <laughs> even though you Robo-debt? fucking worked on it what we've talked what? about what? it a lot before you can check out our previous episodes um but basically yeah it's it's now been ended it cost us a billion dollars in in to accomplish nothing punish a whole lot of people cause a lot of suicides and it turns out that the very early days of it um the government was warned 76 times that it was illegal and unenforceable. Yeah, basically, people who had received robo debts, some proportion of these people were like, "Hold on, I, you, you can't just say, oh, we accidentally paid you too much welfare, you know, a decade ago when you were on welfare, and now you got to pay all that back with interest." So they took the government to tribunal over this, and the tribunal was like, "Yeah, you can't yep. do that. You, no debt." And this happened seventy six times 76 different people went to tribunal to stop a robo debt and every single time the tribunal was like yeah you can't issue debts like that that doesn't work and the government fought back on that judgment exactly zero they had times no defense. because they fucking knew that they couldn't issue debts like that because you can't issue debts like that yet they continued the program anyway they issued thousands and thousands more debts and yeah now they're getting sued in a big class action because of course they fucking are because they're goddamn criminals and people are getting their refunds back, but it's extremely slow. Mm. And, like, it basically involves a lot of work on your part to make sure that you get the money. Because yeah. the government relied on the fact that the people being issued these debts, which are, by definition, the most poor and disenfranchised parts of our population, um, wouldn't fight these individually, wouldn't take these to tribunal or, or you know, however you fight robo-debts. Or even just make an appeal to Centrelink because that system itself is designed to be inscrutable, it's designed to be complicated, and it's designed to wear you down. So without even getting to the court system, to just to just go to Centrelink, hey, you sent me this letter, I think it's wrong, I'd like to have it reviewed, takes you literally weeks, if not months of work to get through, and they were fucking counting yeah, and on it. They fucking the first response you get to that. Whistleblowers within Centrelink have said, we had targets for robo-debts claimed up on white boards and we got disciplined if we didn't rot enough money out of yeah. poor people like <laughs> there's a hundred percent predatory it's like system. trying to cancel your phone scheme you know they're not going to go okay sure yeah no that sounds fair they're going to try and stop you from canceling it they're going to try and stop you from fighting it. they're going to try and demoralize you to the point where you give up and that's what they did also this uh information about the the 76 times in the tribunal those outcomes were 
meant to be suppressed. Like, you know, we'll, we'll cancel your RoboDebt, but don't talk about this. But that information has come out recently because of the class action. The, the uh, Gordon Legal, who's running the class action, managed to uh, get that information. And then they've said, yeah, check it out. 76 times the government was warned that the scheme was unenforceable. And 76 times they cancelled those debts, but they didn't stop the whole scheme because they kept insisting that it was legal. They personally name Alan Tudge as somebody who definitely received some of that communication. So at least Alan Tudge knew that it was not a legal scheme. And at least Alan Tudge went ahead with it because the man's a shit. Alan Tudge is the Minister for uh, Population, Cities and Urban Infrastructure at the moment. So a big, not good enough shout out to you personally, Alan Tudge, you turd of a human you being. Not Fuck you. <laughs> he knew like Alan in, Tudge. <laughs> he he knew in 2017 that the scheme was not enforceable and then to enforce it would make it illegal. If in any other walk of life you come into information that you know something is illegal or not enforceable or, or, or whatever and you have the ability to do something about it and you don't do it, you are criminally liable. That's how that works. If you can intervene in something illegal and you don't do it and you know you could have, you're fucking criminally liable. Alan Tudge is probably going to be our fucking prime minister uh, in 10 years. Yeah. Like, it's just... Criminal organization. You're saying these words like criminally liable, but the thing is, yes, if you break the law, you're criminally liable for the law that you broke, but if you're a high-profile MP in a corrupt government, you're not really criminally liable. Have you thought about that? Like, who's going to who's gonna arrest you? Yeah, you could also meet up with Frydenberg and try to change the laws, the, the backroom meals. Oh, I think this might hurt me and my family. What can you do about it? It's like heaps, but don't tell anyone. Oh, you fucking told people, you idiot. <laughs> what I'll do is I'll say to the police... Don't investigate this and don't push it at all. And then when they don't, and I'm asked about it, I'll say, if it's okay with the police, it's okay with me. The people responsible for these schemes, destroying thousands and thousands of lives, are the people who are still making decisions on behalf of all of us about how our societies and systems run. And they're still responsible for thousands and thousands of lives. It's I, I, Off the top of my head, I can't think of a politician who has been punished in a real way for destroying thousands of lives and making terrible decisions instead of just getting promoted or retired or shuffled to a different seat. Yeah, Bridget McKenzie lost her portfolio. It hasn't happened in a long time and this just dovetails into our like ongoing conversation about how laws aren't real. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how politics is organised crime. The media ecosystem in Australia, as we all know, is really fucked. <laughs> Pretty much every mainstream journalist is like, mm, I love the government. And anytime the government says something, they repeat it verbatim and they never ask any okay. questions because they're a bunch of cowards and they're all going to go to hell. But we found a good journalist and we spoke to him. A press release? <laughs> That's my job done. Who's up for martinis? Uh, Jim Malo is a journalist for Domain, which is the property and real estate section for a few Fairfax uh, newspapers. It's one of those slightly glossy bits that falls out when you open the paper. <laughs> uh, it's really surprising to find somebody like him uh, working in that section because he's very passionate passionate about climate and social justice and he's just a very interesting man and uh, Mitch and Evie had the fortune to speak to him and uh, I'm going to edit <laughs> that interview in here now. So joining uh, Evie and I now is a fantastic journalist. We've wanted to have him on the show for a uh, for a little while. That's it's, nice. uh, it's Jim Malo. Thank you. Hey, Hi Jim. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to be here. Lovely to meet the two of you as well um, after following you um, for a little while on Twitter. So yeah. Yeah, this is the main like this the main reason we started this podcast is just to sort of scream into the void. But the second reason is to meet people. <laughs> isn't that um isn't that why everyone has Twitter anyway? Just screaming into the void? I feel like that's sort of the Yeah, I just feel like cuz I've been a like metal vocalist for the better part of a decade now and there is just something different when your vocal cords aren't involved. So that's why a podcast <laughs> is good. Just every week just actually work the diaphragm and just oh, why does everything happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I remember, Jim, when I followed you for the first time, I saw your bio, which was like, you know, a whole bunch of interests, which I really like, which is, you know, climate change, renters' rights, and you're like, weird mix, I know. And I was like, that's exactly the <laughs> yeah. kind of weird mix that I like. <clears throat> yeah, it's um, it was a fun sort of like um, uh, journey to arrive. I feel a little bit wanky saying <laughs> that, but like, you know, to arrive at like my what my round has become. Um, so, you know, like I, I do, uh, I was actually doing, uh, focusing almost entirely on climate change, uh, and the environment, um, from about August last year. Uh, so, you know, it was something that, uh, my editor, um, at the time, who's now the, the news director, 
um, or editorial director. I forget. It changes a lot. Um, sorry, Adrian, mm. if you're listening. Um, <laughs> he, um, he sort of uh, like suggested this and, you know, we had to apply to, to get the round. But, um, you know, he suggested it and said that maybe I would be interested. And I really found that it was really fun to uh, sort of try to apply climate and the environment to property. Um, you know, it, it, it had felt really limiting for a little while because, you know, I was writing about apartments and, and you know, nice houses like um, uh, occasionally because I'm a Kanye West fan. Um, please don't hold that against me. Um, <laughs> they would make me write about like, you know, Kanye West has listed his house and all that sort of shit. And, um, yeah. you know, it felt limiting. But then like, you know, getting the chance to sort of apply, um, you know, how can I make property and uh, climate and the environment fit together to get, you know, apply those two things together. Um, it's actually a really fun challenge. Yeah, that's the thing I really enjoy about your articles there as well is that it's making the most of what people wouldn't expect from a platform such as Domain. Sorry to sledge off your um, place <laughs> no, of work. Cool. I, totally, <laughs> um, I totally understand. And um, it, like, you know, Ben Eltham on Twitter, um, who you may have seen, he like he's t- constantly talking shit about us, but like, um, <laughs> or used to be, but like, um, I think I think now he realizes, but anyway, sorry, I interrupted Evie. No, 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 that's okay. Um, but yeah, just making use of your platform to engage in topics that, say, someone who's reading for property listings wouldn't necessarily expect, such as, you know, renters' rights and climate change and thinking about, you know, beyond the scope of just simple celebrity listings. Yeah. And, um, you know, depending on how you feel about the way um, property sort of works in um, in Australia right now, you know, you may like come towards – and look, a lot of our readers are probably not the type of people who would listen to your podcast or the type of people that, <laughs> um, you know, that my articles um, tend to appeal to. And we can see that in the in the numbers sometimes, especially with climate change, unless I like I make the headline something along the lines of like – um, here's how you can save money um, by, you know, changing the direction of your solar panels. Like people aren't going to click it. Um, and, you know, that's something that we have to deal with um, all the time. But it's also, um, you know, an opportunity for us to actually um, expand our audience, you know, past people who see Domain as like a place to go for property, you know, like for, for people like us. And, and that's why, you know, I get the opportunity to write the things that I do is because um, uh, my boss sees the, the opportunity um, you know, in, you know, potential untapped audiences, which is, you know, the, the, the barefaced, you know, sort of like capitalism at the, at the heart of it, but that's, but that's how it works. Yeah. So then, I mean, let's, let's just dive into the Australian media ecosystem then. Um, We'd love to. So, <laughs> so, so far as it goes then from the inside looking out, like as a journalist, mm. um, you would, you would know the criticism that, like journalism seems to get in this country in the Western world at large over the last four years. I don't know why that would have changed four years ago. Um, <laughs> but like, and and also like like you usually it is um, women, but journalists in general, the bigger the the bigger the journalist, the more flack they cop online. Yeah. Um, like. And a lot of it is just unfounded bullshit. But there does seem to be occasionally kernels of truth in there about them like giving time to people that you shouldn't and 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 i say shouldn't and there's obviously people that do believe that they should be given time but so as a journalist how do you sort of um pass that tension between um reporting like quote unquote the truth and reporting on balance and giving like equal weight to things and not being biased and that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. So this is a this is another heavy question. Um, and before we move into it, I just want to point out that um, I do get some you know like trolls or just people being you know rude or unfair to me or I feel like they're being unfair to me on Twitter. Um, but like it is nowhere near the level of criticism that my female colleagues um, get. And I just want to say that that is totally fucked. Am I allowed to say fucked? Yes. No way, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's totally fucked, and it's um totally unfair. And like um I saw a tweet from um uh, PK from um you know the afternoon show um on ABC um and, and she got like a an, a letter from some dude like rating her 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 tits like it's it's totally fucked like Fuck, the yeah I know it's right just- the. The, the shit that female journalists cop compared to what I cop is, um, nuts. And I think yeah. if I had a, a less Anglo name as well, I probably would cop it a bit more too. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I just want to point out that that's totally fucked. However, um, I do think that criticism of journalism and journalists is pretty fair uh, when it comes to particularly balance, I think is, um, is pretty fair. And, um, I also, uh, do like while there is this mentality of journalists sort of like uh you know circling the wagons i know this isn't the question that you asked i'll I'll get to it i promise (laughs) uh but 
this mentality of circling the wagons uh, around any criticism that journalists get, I think, is uh, pretty uh, weak shit, uh, if I'm going to be real. Uh, like, the way... Like, because, you know, a lot of the criticism can be incredibly vitriolic and, you know, not on. Like, it's some of it is kind of fucked. But uh, particularly with um, some journalists that I disagree with, I recall seeing some tweets recently that, um, you know, made me think this is unhinged, um, even though I don't like that journalist. But, um, yeah, I think the way that journalists have been acting recently when it comes to balance, I think they have been, like, uh, in the broadest terms, uh, letting the electorate and just like all letting, you know, Australia, the Western world, um, I'm, because I can't really comment on other um, parts of the world, but, um, you know, letting the Western world down. I, I think this, um, this idea that, uh, journalists need to have the balance in both sides, of everything has like directly harmed, uh, the conditions we live in. I think it's directly harmed the, um, the integrity of the institutions that, that, that sort of protect us and, uh, are the, the basis of our society. And it's, it's harmed the, the public's perception of journalists as well. Uh, because we, for some reason, fetishize of it, objectivity. And that's not to say that at some point, um, objectivity, uh, didn't serve journalists because I think it probably did particularly when there was no economic consensus or, you know, there was a, uh, or there was, you know, like a, the world was just a little bit more cordial and the, the genocide of, um, indigenous people and, uh, or the, you know, the, the, the neocolonialism of the developing world was sort of, um, at an arm's length and probably wasn't as, um, it didn't feel as, uh, uh, critical to deal with those issues at the yeah. time. Um, I think when that was happening, maybe both sides in allowed um, robust debate in in communities and uh, you know in our society. But now, when we're at this point where uh, you know both sides in means uh, someone like um, you know a racist gets equal time with the the victim of their racism, or Steve Bannon appears um, with Sarah Ferguson. Oh, God, yes. Um, <laughs> or, you, or even just fucking Blair Cottrell appears on Hat. Oh. Yeah, on exactly. Yeah. And then on Sky News, and Sky News apologizes. Mm. <laughs> Me too. I um I bitch about that constantly. Um, and you know I think like these ideas, like you know, at a certain point, like. <laughs> Um, we need to shed that because like, it's not okay. And it is uh, whether, I don't know what caused this, but like, you know, the society has shifted. Like, you know, you can't just like act like, uh, Blair Cottrell is like someone who has just an opinion that needs to be heard because he is, he's a convicted racist, you know, like he, mm. he has been convicted of the crime of racism. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the reason that we feel it a lot more now as well in the present time as opposed to, as you said, like in the past, it may have, you know, um, led to more robust debate. And that's also in a much smaller atomized communities, whereas now it's mm. a, everything is a global stage. So yep. as soon as you platform someone who's potentially harmful, a lot more people are going to see it. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily see, um, you know, Steve Bannon being interviewed by someone if it was just like a community newspaper, but this is a national program and Sarah Ferguson and the ABC would be responsible for platforming someone with hateful beliefs or hateful ideas that may lead to policy. And so yeah, because they yeah. just like, they take their hands off the wheel. They're like, oh, well, you know, it's just my job. I'm just doing my job. Right. And yeah. it's like, you know, like you, you make the choice. The issue as well is that like when, when they say like, oh, I'm just doing my job, like also for profit, journalism has has an issue like you were talking about how Blair Cottrell is, has been convicted of racism so has media commentator Andrew Bolt <laughs> like yeah so yeah. Th there is there's an yeah. issue where like when we're talking about why would they give a platform like, why would they interview someone convicted of racism it's like well an interviewer on like as someone who still has their own a show named after themselves has been convicted of racism but mm. the way money flows means that if the person hiring him wants to give him a job they can there's no public recourse to that there's no and there's no public recourse to that because journalists, even though they like to sort of abdicate responsibility, th they do set the conversation. That's something I sort of wanted to ask you about as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, 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 the issue that some journalists seem to have between the, the, the problem journalists have in admitting that they don't just report on conversations, they set conversations. Mm. Do you mm. think they still do? Do you think they do less than they used to or? Uh, yeah, another tough question. Look, I think they do less than they used to for sure. Um, and yeah. I think ignoring, 
that is, um, uh, but I think ignoring that they, they do set the conversation at all is, uh, is pretty, pretty pathetic. Like the way you can see racism starting to happen after, you know, there is a racist article. Like, um, I'm sure you're probably working up to this, but the op-ed I wrote about the, um, uh, the way that, uh, the Australian and Sky News was reporting the, uh, black, that the Black Lives Matter clusters, uh, Black Lives Matter, sorry, uh, protests were linked to, uh, the clusters of the coronavirus. That directly, like, I, actually was in a comment section on Facebook and people were linking those articles using it to support their their arguments that you know that uh that you know the the protests were misguided and selfish and that sort of thing and like racists were then using that as their conversation starter or as you know like a um, something to to prop their conversation up or their their argument up and to ignore that I think is 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 just irresponsible and even uh when the courier mail um God bless their souls doxed two black women from uh from oh, f- Logan, yeah right, you remember that yeah, um, I wanted to ask you about this yeah okay yeah. cool um so my sister works in customer service in Queensland. The days after that happened, she was fielding racist comments from customers and her co-workers about those girls. She is, um, you know, she's mixed like I am. Uh, so she isn't necessarily as black as, you know, like someone like, uh, like my father who is directly from Africa. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, she still had to then deal with people saying like, oh, well, you know, you people are going to ruin it for us. Like you people are doing this. And oh, one, um, one, I'm not going to use the N word, but like one girl who she worked with said like, um, you know, oh, we got to turn off these N word beats after some hip hop came on because she was worried that it would, you know what Whoa. I mean? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> and like this happened as a direct result of that reporting oh. and to abdicate responsibility for, for causing these things like is, is just, it's just pathetic because like they, they think that, you know, they have the moral high ground because they're, Oh, I'm objective, but you're not. They, ha- they think they have the moral high ground. And also like, mm. they're so far removed from the consequences of their actions. Yep. Exactly. Like that's yep. what I think I- about, like when, whenever I've argued with people about like Blair Cottrell being platformed, I constantly just say, like, you don't know what it's like, you know, to have, like, you know, to have Blair Cottrell up as, you know, and being platformed basically is giving people who do hold those beliefs but keep them silently the okay to, you know, say them out loud. A hundred percent. And I don't think that people really realize that. And I don't think people really realize um, how hard it is then for a, a journalist of color. And um, my my good friend, Madeline Heyman Reba, actually wrote a an op-ed for the Saturday paper around the same time as mine about this exact issue. But if you're like a, a black journalist or you're a, a indigenous journalist, like black with just a K, um, you know, <laughs> you are taking this home with you. You know, you, you see the effects, uh, you know, you know, your mileage may vary. Not everyone is as um, uh, sympathetic to it as, you know, like, you know, like black people are not an, a monolith. I just shouldn't make that disclaimer. But, you know, you take this home with you because and, and you can never really be objective because it's your humanity that's being discussed. White people don't have to deal with this or white journalists, I should say, don't have to deal with that because their humanity is rarely ever, if at all, in question. But for someone like me, I have to I wake up in the morning, see that Two girls have had their um, their photos and their their names plastered all over um, a notoriously racist newspaper, and then I have to deal with the fact that um, you know my sister is getting uh, making racist comments. Um, oh no, sorry, my sister is having racist comments made towards her. You know, uh, it's not something I have to deal with because um, I live in Melbourne and I don't have to face that um, directly. But yeah, it's just it's just impossible for me to be objective about that. Keeping in mind, if no one saw it. These two women were docs and the headline was enemies of the state. Yeah. Like you you can't get more Rwandan genocide than fucking <laughs> yeah. enemies yeah. of the state with yeah. people who aren't white Australians on a fucking headline. But do you do you do you think that they know that they are just fucking uh, you know sock puppets sock puppets for capital and they're just doing their job and whether they like it or not whatever. Or do you think that there is a a level of disconnect that I mean, I don't know. I'm presuming they're white, but they're probably, you know, at least rich. Do you think that they could at least convince themselves that that's somewhat objective because they're disconnected from the effects of it? 
They yeah. can just sort of go, look, so, we need to have a pithy headline. We need to get people involved. And it, it is just reporting. Ha-ha. Well, I actually saw the social media editor from the Korea Mail on Twitter defending the whole charade. And I think that is particularly- Imagine. Yeah. And the, the social media editor who is like presumably suppo- like supposed to hide each racist comment as it comes in, um, <laughs> you know, like saying like, no, no, this isn't racist. But like I saw other journalists from News Corp- um, and others that have been vocal um, and outspoken uh, critics of race, uh, racists in the past defending it as well. And I think um, the the key thing uh, that people are missing that makes that racist reporting is that it, they didn't get the same treatment as white people who were accused of the same crime did. I mean, maybe the you know the yeah. crime itself was a little bit different. They they did spend eight days in the community, and I shouldn't downplay that because that that. It, creates significant risk because they were both positive to coronavirus and they were in the yeah. community for eight days and they could have they could have killed people but um other people have done similar things they've tried to get around the rules and they don't get the same treatment and i think lots that of rich is people the problem. <laughs> lots of rich people as well but like there are several different steps in the way that this would have ended up getting reported that would have caused the that that probably um that i think sort of show that this is a problem, right? So either the police or the Queensland government would have given out their details. And then once they gave them out, the Korea Mail chose to publish them and then chose to publish them in such an offensive way. Um, those are the, the the steps and the the points at which, you know, actual human beings could have made decisions to protect these girls from the racist abuse that they they received. Um, sorry, I took this on a bit of a tangent because the original question was, no. do these, are these people aware of, um, whether or not they are, um, you know, doing something that is racist or is damaging? And I think that, um, maybe they don't see it that way. Like I made this analogy in my, um, in my op-ed that, you know, people are like, they act like Pontius Pilate, right? When he committed Jesus to death, he, like, he washed his hands, um, you know, allegedly, because who knows if that's real or not, but he washed his hands and said, like, you know, this is something that you, like, you know, you guys have done. Like, it's not something that I've done. You've done it, right? Yeah, and like, that's how we, it's abdicating responsibility. Yeah, exactly. And that's how journalists seem to act. But the reality of the situation is, um, Pontius Pilate and us journalists can turn around and say, oh, well, actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, you know, free the man who actually is free of sin. Why did I say that? <laughs> is this a sermon? Like, what's going on? <laughs> no, this is sick. Oh, cheers. Thanks. Oh, my God. I also, I also just love the idea of, like, the Bible having allegedly is the first word of the Bible. <laughs> allegedly, in the beginning, and the whole thing from there. <laughs> yeah, we should do a other yeah. journalist edition of the Bible. Sure. Um, I really appreciate you being a voice for renters in Australia. And I know that a lot of your articles feature renters and their experiences and their struggles, um, especially with dealing with landlords and especially right now uh, with COVID too. Um, And again, this is making use of a platform to amplify voices that usually don't get a go in most media, uh, especially renters uh, struggling with shitty landlords. Um, so can you talk about a bit more about your experience with that? Just like with, um, hearing them, what they have to say. The, I just want to shout out Rahu, the renter and, um, how the renters and housing union, by the way, because they're doing a phenomenal job and they were, they only formed, um, as a result of the the pandemic. And they give me lots of case studies of renters who are like suffering, um, you know, during the coronavirus pandemic and give me the opportunity to tell their stories. So they are a great organization. I really appreciate them. Um, but it is a kind of a weird thing to do because um, as the pandemic started, and this goes back to what I was saying about being a black journalist, not being able to write about racism. I'm a renter. My One of my housemates fled to Queensland as soon as um, it looked like the borders were going shut and left me in the lurch. I didn't know if I was going to be able to afford the rent in this house. And um, and one of my housemates is an international student, um, you know, a potential illegal Im- immigrant, according to some. And, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like – we had to have hard conversations about, you know, what we're going to do, um, you know, to about, you know, our rent and, you know, our income and if we're going to be able to survive. Um, and, you know, I, as I was writing those stories about, you know, like, um, uh, Rosie, who I, who I follow on, um, Twitter as well and follows me on Twitter. So shouts, Rosie, thanks for talking to me. Um, but, you know, when I was writing her story about actually getting a, a rent reduction from a landlord, I was sitting there thinking, like, how am I going to, 
get a rent reduction on my house so I can stay in the the home I've lived in the longest since I like I left my parents' house. You know, like it was it's it's actually a really uh, weird experience. And I think through that, and and this is actually how I sort of moved away from climate journalism because like obviously there was a need, you know, like to to start writing about the renters' rights and everything because there's just so much going on. And every single day, you know, I I I come into work and I sit there and I think, can I actually tell all the stories of people who are going through a hard time right now that I I want to be able to? And there, and the answer is no, I just can't. There there are so many, and it's it's like. I guess like the question being like, you know, like how, how, how does it feel? I mean, it feels like incredibly, like it's, it's good to give a voice to the voiceless. And that's, and that's why I want to be a journalist because, um, you know, I, I sat there and I saw things, um, going wrong in the world. And I thought like, I would, I would love to be able to tell these people's stories. And I've been given the opportunity to do that with this, um, with this crisis. So, I mean, I'd rather there was no crisis, but, um, it's like, I guess it's like a, a bit of an honor to be able to actually say, you know, like, you know, while, um, you know, renters were, facing homelessness because most of them work in these industries that are going to be that are you know that are, have been hardest hit yeah it's funny that you mentioned rosie because she's actually a mate of ours um oh sweet cool and um yeah i actually she listens shout out yeah shout out to, <laughs> shout out to rose rose callahan on twitter um <laughs> i'm sure she'll appreciate i'm sure she'll appreciate me giving me the giving her the plug um <laughs> but yeah like I, I remember her early conversations about it which was like you know freaking out like, as anyone would and as so many of our friends are which is how am i going to survive what am i going to do um, you know, she's got a partner and just worrying about like, you know, what of us, one of us loses our income, uh, and she's a performer too. So most of her income for the rest of this year is gone. So gone, yeah. just having to struggle with, you know, just this sudden being plunged into how do I have this conversation and what happens if I can't, like what happens exactly. if it goes wrong? Yeah. And that was, um, and you know, that's, it's, it's such a, a like a prevalent issue, you know, like. So many arts workers like Rose, um, so many like, uh, you know, so many, uh, people who work in restaurants. One of my housemates now works in, a, in a restaurant and she's getting JobKeeper and that's going to go down soon. You know, like there are all these people who, um, tend to be renters that, uh, you know, were hit the hardest by the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, they needed their stories to be told. And it was just like, it just sort of happened, but I'm, I'm glad that it did for me. And this is, so this, this is the, I suppose the last point before I've got like, one last question that I really want an insider's view on, but yeah. in terms of like not platforming climate deniers, that's fine. Yeah. And uh, I mean, fuck, you might not be Which able to I will never this. do, by the way. I will never platform a climate denier. Hell yeah. Solidarity with <laughs> with you excluding people that should just be excluded by default. No, you don't, you don't have to have a Nazi on <laughs> no, your platform to talk yeah. about race. You don't have yeah. to have a climate denier. <laughs> but then, so, but th- this is the, this is the weird political move that like politicians, corporations whatever whatever are making is that they then go oh no i don't deny climate change and i of course i think that we have to act on climate change and obviously the best way to act on climate change is with gas and or like or exporting coal and it's like looking looking forward for the next five years because they're going to be critical how do you reckon journalists can deal with the deal with people who are essentially just acting in bad faith just don't talk to them like there's no there's no reason to talk to someone who you know is not going to answer something truthfully you know is doing something that is going to impact the the lives of you know pr- probably your life and um if not your life your children's lives um you know there's there's absolutely no reason to give these people other than the the conventions that um you know have existed in journalism for centuries or decades or whatever whatever the fuck it is like that is the the only reason if tradition is the only reason why you are giving this person who is a demonstrable danger to society airtime to air their grievances like i think people really need to rethink why they would do something like that because in in all honesty at the at the very least it's cowardice at the at the at the very worst it's maliciously like turning public debate turning public opinion away from things that could potentially um save the world and that's no hyperbole See, just to go on what you were saying before, Jim, um, uh, earlier on about enough rope, it, it's the idea of giving them enough rope to do it. And I don't think a lot of journalists are well-placed to actually give enough rope to a bad faith actor to get them, you know, to hang themselves with it. 
Um, you exactly metaphor- right. Metaphorically speaking, of course. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah in Minecraft, right? Um, but yeah, um, no, just th- you're exactly right. That That is a, a major failing. And it was one of my biggest issues with TV news was that I only had a minute 20. And, you know, if I was telling the story of, you know, some poor widower who lost his wife in a car crash, you know, a minute 20 felt like an insult to him and her memory, you know? And, and when it comes to dealing with, uh, climate change or dealing with bad faith actors who are telling lies, like, um, at the, at the worst, you know, maybe like 30 seconds of a, a minute and 20 of a television, uh, news, uh, news slot is going to be filled up with their lies. And, you know, another 30 seconds will be filled with you rebutting them. It's a waste of time. It shouldn't happen. But then. The issue is that the the issue of climate change has been politicized and we have political actors acting in what I would call bad faith. So let's just say let's just say hypothetically we've got a political party that's in power and they are pushing like climate damaging policies that are no good for the let's just, like, hypothetically. <laughs> hypothetically, yeah, of course. Are you do do you think then that like it would even it would be feasible then for people to just sort of like or for journalists and media companies i should say to just like not report on the energy minister's new fossil fuel portfolio or fund and just and just you just don't like if you're at the guardian and you've got your um platform where you will want you won't give time to climate deniers when they deny climate then you only go to like the prime minister when he's not talking about climate and then you just never hear from him on climate is that is that feasible do you think well, I, I think you could argue that at a certain point there is some damage that could be done with that as well. You know, that if yeah. by not informing the electorate of their, their harmful views, you are, you're causing trouble. But I think it, it needs to be weighed up against the, um, the public interest of, of not actually reporting that thing. Um, yeah, it's, it is, it is genuinely really tough because you can't not report on what the prime minister is doing hypothetically if he was denying climate. But that's the problem with Trump. Yeah. Like, you can't, yeah. he's, he, he's now the president. Like yeah. it or not, he's, he, he, he's the president. But like, you have to, you do have to report on the, what the president of America does. But it's, it's how you do it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point and a very uh, a good gotcha for my my impassioned plea to journalists to stop talking to climate deniers. But I think, um, <laughs> I think the the trouble is right. It just sort of depends on on the situation and, and in each uh, each person, you know, hypothetically, if they're denying climate, like what you what you do with it. Um, the the trouble is, though, that uh, these people, when their views are repeated, um, the, the people don't the people who already believe this thing or are inclined to believe it um, don't listen to the rebuttal or read the rebuttal they just see the view that they yeah. see um that they agree with being legitimized and they and they sort of grab that and and run with it and, and you know this is a problem that i don't think we have fully reckoned with because here i am sort of walking back what i was saying just a minute ago and i think that goes to show just how much of a problem this is and how pervasive it is like it's how do we fraud. actually deal with this it, it, it's super fraught um you know you could say it's a fracas <laughs> but like um but yeah it's um i wish i i wish i had an easy answer but um as a, a fairly junior journalist i think i don't have all the answers and my i hope you're listening adrian because this is a mere culpa mate <laughs> thanks so much man thanks so much no, for coming you. on our podcast cool. i uh, yeah, appreciate Jim, thanks so much for that man that Thanks was, for saying nice things that, about my articles, which I thought no one read. Yeah, man, the, the articles are good. If they weren't good, I just wouldn't have brought them up. Um, so, <laughs> oh, you're a writer. That's quaint. Um, so, no, man, this is this has been fucking amazing. Thank you so much for this. Um, so, are we done recording? Or? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I'm going to keep that in. Fuck you. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, um, do you have anywhere for um, like do, any of the plugs? Do you want to plug oh, in yeah. where, where you publish Twitter handles or do you want people to just leave you alone? Uh, you can see my stories um, on any of the Fairfax mastheads um, uh, in the domain section or you can read it on domain.com.au slash news. Um, and if you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I am very close to 3,000 followers, so I'd love it if people could follow me. Uh, <laughs> it's at the Hashtag Jim Malo. <laughs> yeah, I know. Get Jim to 10K. But it's um, um, at the Jim Malo, um, and you spell Malo, M-A-L-O. Um, I put the V in there because I think it's funny, but I don't think people will get that. They probably just think I'm full of myself, which you probably will also get from me saying I'm nearly at 3,000 followers. Yeah. So <laughs> The? He's only on 2.95 thousand followers. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I think it's funny because like Paul Barry has the real P Barry as his Twitter handle. And like, as if anyone's pretending to be Paul Barry. <laughs> I'm sick of these Paul Barry imposters. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. Thanks again for coming on, man. This has been amazing. Anytime. Thanks so much. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening to Not Good Enough. Uh, you can get in touch with us and we'd love to hear from you uh, on all the socials at notgoodpod. Or if you want to do an email, uh, then that's notgoodpod at protonmail.com. And yeah, let us know what you think. If you disagree with us on things, uh, whatever. Do an email. <laughs> you do you. If it's fine with the ATO, it's fine with me. <laughs> Not Good Enough was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders and sovereignty was never ceded.